Welcome back to another episode of Radical Health Radio. Today, I had the man mountain, Kyle Kingsbury, in the studio. Kyle is an ex-college footballer turned professional UFC fighter, become a father, now he's a farmer. He's an impeccable storyteller. The wisdom oozes off Kyle, and we go all over the map on this one. We obviously hear about his time fighting in the UFC. We hear about how he's shaped his worldviews now of becoming a father, what he's doing to steward the land in regenerative agriculture. We learn about his thoughts on kids doing martial arts, the way he's raising his children in an unschool environment. Kyle is a gem. He's actually been somebody that I've looked up to for a long time and learned a lot from. So this was a really cool conversation for, for me personally. And I think you're going to get a lot of value out of this one. So without further ado, Mr. Kyle Kingsbury. Kyle Kingsbury, welcome to the show, brother. I was joking before we went live that I feel like I'm a wish version of Kyle Kingsbury, a poor man's version of Kyle, because we've got similar stories, but mine's just like a little less developed and further along. So I want to introduce the the audience to you because you are a footballer, a fighter, a father, now a farmer. There's a lot of life lived there. There's a lot of wisdom. So tell us the story of Kyle in a nutshell. I know you like to start your podcast this way. Take us back, man. What's the story and how, what, where did you come from and how have you landed to this version of yourself right now? This is where I can get long-winded. So you I'll can. See if I can. I can go for it, bro. <laughs> uh, Cliff noted. Um, see, I grew up in the Silicon Valley and... Um, Parents fought a lot, no physical violence, but it was, it was enough to, to, uh, to put some pressure on me. And, um, football became my first love, my first like real outlet for me mentally. And, um, started playing at eight years old, loved it, loved the physicality of it. It was everything I could have hoped for and more. And it was really my lifelong dream to play in the NFL, made it to, I walked on at Arizona state and, um, you know, had the decision actually to play either get a partial scholarship to D1 AA or walk on and play with the big boys. And I talked to some of the older guys on the team and they're like, you could go be a big fish in a small pond, but you'll never know unless you walk on. So I walked on and I sat the bench for two years. I maybe had like three plays a game. So it didn't, it didn't pan out in, in some respects. And at the same time it, it did. Cause I had an amazing strength coach actually a whole bunch of amazing strength coaches. Two of them went on to make, um, become head coaches in the NFL, Joe Ken, big house, only, only strength coach ever to win strength coach of the year in NCAA football division one, as well as in the NFL. He's a strength coach, the Carolina Panthers and Mark Uyama went on to coach the Niners. And, uh, I think now the Vikings. So I had these guys that knew they knew how to, how to get me stronger, but really what they were doing was they were pushing me through any glass sailing that I thought I had, right? Like, Oh, I can't do that. And I'd smash through that glass ceiling and be like, okay, well, I can't do that. And then it smashed through that glass ceiling. And, and after enough of those, I just began to realize like, there's, there's a, there's a limit. There's no limit to my potential. It's just a matter of how hard can I work and, and how smart can I work? And because I didn't play at all in football and, and, you know, like the guys ahead of me went on to play in the NFL. I knew guys that started all four years at ASU and didn't play in the NFL. So mm -hmm. the jump was palpable and I knew I wasn't going to do that. I also knew I didn't want to play arena league. Because I, if I wasn't going to play at the best, there's no no point in my mind. Um, so I got into I hit I hit a lull when football ended. It was the most depressing time in my life. Um, you know, had all the bad drugs. I say like drugs that that you know if it, if a drug leaves you more whole than when you started, it's a good drug. 
If it does not, it's a bad drug. And we were the number one party school in the nation at that mm. point, like two years straight for Playboy and uh, hit a real lull. And then coming out of that, um, you know, it really popped the bubble of what I was supposed to do. You know, you have to finish college to get a degree. You have to do all these things. You got to get a job. That just snapped for me at this low point. And coming out of that, I really asked myself for the first time in my life, what do I want to do? And I know I, don't, I didn't want to finish college. So I'm actually still a senior at ASU, like Van Wilder. And, um, and when I got clear, I just looked to what I was missing. I knew I was missing the team and the camaraderie that I had in football. Like working out at 24-hour fitness felt like masturbation mm. compared to like, you know, an orgy with like all the best people in the world. You know, you, you're doing a back squat max and you've got a hundred people watching you and three of the strongest coaches on earth spotting you from all three sides yelling at you up up you know death metal playing like it's a whole different feeling and um started in mma just to really gain that back i wanted the camaraderie i also wanted to do something to practice something i didn't know how to do so there was a learning element in there other than just working out and uh very quickly had a guy who ran the gym. He also ran a local MMA show called Rage in the Cage. And he's like, dude, you're tall, you're athletic, you're good looking. Do a pro fight. If you do good, you can keep going. If you don't do good, you can say you fought pro, mm -hmm. right? At yeah. least one time. I was like, that's a pretty good pitch. And uh, first two fights, I won in under 30 seconds. Then I really started to sit down and think like, how do I take this seriously? What do I need to do? And um, made it to 7-0, and lost my first fight. And my coach was really great. He's an awesome guy. He's still a good friend of mine. Vince Perez Mazzola. He was a JKD guy who trained under Dan and Asantos, mm -hmm. uh, under Bruce Lee, obviously. And he's like, dude, I can't give you the camp. You got to go back home. And home was where AKA was flourishing, American Kickboxing yeah. Academy, uh, which I trained at a bit when I was younger. Frank Shamrock was the coach there. You no know, way. one of the OGs. Yeah. Uh, Bob Cook, excuse me, who later became like the manager for all the fighters. He was fighting and I think he had fought in the UFC. But when I came back, you know, like there was Josh Koscheck, John Fitch, Mike Swick, like three guys in the top 10 at welterweight. And um, when I was playing football at Arizona State, Cain Velasquez was wrestling at Arizona State and he had decided to go there. So there was a lot of good big guys to work with. And then Daniel Cormier, of course, came in, later become champion. Luke Rockhold was there in his infancy, later became middleweight champion. So those are the guys that I surrounded myself with after that first loss, made my way into the ultimate fighter. And that was my doorway into the UFC. And, uh, while in the UFC, uh, we had a boxing coach from AKA who later became a cut man in the UFC named Huizzi Arturo Mata, mm. who passed away, but um, he was a medicine man. You know, he was a mestizo medicine man uh, with Aztec lineage, lineage and Mexican lineage. And he would bring us out for traditional sweat lodges on Native American land, did that for a couple of years. He was my introduction to plant medicines with respect and reverence. And that really caused like a really hard shift in my life in the next chapter redrew me back into nature which you know if we talk about farming and a lot of things like that like that's the clear if i was to trace it to one thing i trace it to him you know he was one of the most impactful guys for me and let's see at 32 it was 2014 i had always told myself that at any level of the game where it was raging the cage of the ufc if i become a 500 fighter and i lose i'm out that's when i quit because it's not baseball. Mm. And I knew it was going to take a toll on me. And, and to be perfectly honest, I don't like saying this a lot on podcasts, but there were a few of my teammates that I got to witness start to lose it, you know, and these guys were two, three years older than me. We're talking 34, 35 years old. And um, one of them in particular, 
we'd be in conversation. And this happened to me a lot when I was fighting. I'd forget what I was talking about, like a 60-year-old. You know, I'd be like, hey, what was I saying? And I could kind of track that, like, oh, fuck, man. I keep forgetting what I was talking about. This guy would forget he was talking. Hmm. So we'd be in conversation and he'd go blank. And I'd look at him and I'd say, hey, uh, you were talking about such and such. It's like, we were talking? Like he'd fucking completely gone. And yeah, I was wow. like, oh, that's a, that's a different level, right? And of course, you know, when I was in MMA, we were fighting three days a week in the gym and I'm fighting Kane, Daniel Cormier, Luke Rockhold, like all world champions. Mm-hmm. And that took more of a toll in my brain than anything else. So what fighting gave to me outside of plant medicines with Wheatsy was it was my second mountain education wise. I wasn't good enough like DC to eat Popeye's chicken and waffles and play NBA 2K, you know, in between practices. Like I had yeah. to learn everything I could. So everything performance related came to me when I was fighting. That's when I got into Dr. Kelly Sturette's mobility was. That's when I got into Wim Hof and, and cold therapy and sauna and, you know, um, Dr. Ronald Patrick, like anything I get my hands on that would help me be better. And um, as I started to transition, then it became more about the longevity game, how to plant medicines and hyperbaric oxygen and fasting, ketogenic diets help with recovering the brain and getting back some of that that I had lost. And I think in 2014, the moment I retired, Tim Ferriss had a few guys on his podcast, mm-hmm. and Tim's become a buddy. Uh, you had Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, Dr. Peter Atia, and then uh, Dr. Jim Fadiman. And Jim Fadiman wrote the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, which was all on microdosing. And these other two guys were talking big about fasting and ketosis and how it can help with brain repair. And so that's in that retirement point at 32, which was rather young. After I had my final loss, I finished four and five in the UFC. Um, you know, that's really where things started to take off. And I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, you know, at that point, like when football ended, I was literally fucked. I had no concept. All I knew is what I didn't want. I didn't want to get a desk job. I didn't want to work, you know, hundred percent commission like my parents did and fucking be rich one month and dead poor the next, that kind of stress that it put on the family. I was like, absolutely not. And I also knew that whatever degree I had in basket weaving at that point to stay eligible for football was a shit degree I didn't believe in. Mm. So that was a really tough time. But when I, when I retired from MMA, because I had the plants as guidance, one of the big things, the big messages that I got was really just follow the thing that I desire. You know, a lot of the Mark Gaffney stuff, it was just lean into that piece that I care about and all the other shit will pan out. So it was like, do what you love and it'll make it work, you know, almost in a, in a cliche kind of way. And so I kept with that. I just kept reading books. I was working at a strip club while I was fighting. We made dog shit money. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was in my mom's detached garage for five years while I was in the UFC. That was another big factor. Yeah, that's crazy, right? And um, yeah, just brutal. And, uh, you know, had, a, had, a, had an amazing partner who's, who's been my wife and my, my life partner. We've been living together for 12 years. We just celebrated our 12 year. And so when I retired in 2014, I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, we hadn't talked about marriage yet, but she, she's the one. She always, I always knew she was the one. And, um, the plants really just grounded me into that. Follow, follow what you love. And, and sure enough, shit did start to pan out. You know, you almost say I'm lucky in that sense where 2015 comes along. I've read every, I've got exhausted myself on books. And because I've been in a ketogenic state and I can retain information mm-hmm. better than I ever could in college, you know, like in a weird way, I felt like my brain was working for the first time in my life. And, uh, went on Rogan's because of the fight career. We were talking psychedelics and ketogenic diets, fasting, all that good shit. And he, you know, like many people, he convinced me to start a podcast. I didn't do that for a couple of years, but once I did, that opened up, you know, a series of events that led me to here. You know, I went to Paleo FX to meet people and speak and uh, ended up meeting Aubrey Marcus. We shared by chance, if there is such a thing, the same flight back to Vegas where I was living at the time, they were looking at opening the next on it gym. 
And for three hours, we traded war stories and went down the rabbit hole and all the things. And he's like, you got to come work for me at On It. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. You know, I got a pretty good thing here. I got the podcast. You know, I got a kid and uh, we got family in Vegas. I'd have no family in Austin. And then I came out for an interview and it was like, no questions. I'm going to take over the On It podcast as the host. I get to design supplements and I'm director of human optimization. So they're going to pay for anything I want to fucking guinea pig from biohacking standpoint to supplement standpoint. And I get to run that through me and then run that through other people. And well, that's how we're going to design shit. And that was like one of the coolest points in my life. Cause it was a corporate job. I had a, a cubicle, mm. which I didn't want, but I could also walk 20 feet to the jujitsu match where 10th planet was. I could walk hundred feet and hit the sauna on the ice bath. I could, you know, walk 10 feet. And I was in Aubrey's office and we could shoot the shit about anything, you know? So there was a beautiful think tank there. And when he stepped down as CEO, he had already created something called Fit for Service, which was kind of the next development that he wanted to do, um, where we literally would take people in, build community, and give them the kitchen sink of everything that had helped us out, from diet, nutrition, to breath work, to ecstatic dance, and anything legal. Obviously, we're going to put mm -hmm. people, we're not shaman, we're going to put people through plant medicine journeys, but excuse me, at least be able to recommend, you know, our favorite safe places to go to in the Amazon or Costa Rica. And, we were, I think, two or three years in when, when he stepped down. So I stepped down as well and let it go on. It ended up selling and doing very well. And that's, you know, how we ended up with this farm. So, so a lot of, lot of cool things, you know, and of course the pressure of 2020 was a big reason I was in his ear to get a farm and to be able to grow our own food. But, um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a really a story of synchronicities is the way that I see it. Mm -hmm. And, and a similar, you know, like I, I forget who I was talking to, but, um, I think if there's one book that kind of portrays my life as good as any of them, it'd be The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Yeah. And I hadn't even read that until like a couple years ago. And I was yeah. like, this is exactly how I feel like my life is gone. So it's pretty good. The breadcrumbs, right? All yeah. like Boyd Vati, I think you're yeah. familiar yeah, with yeah, the, yeah. the path of not here and then the next track and, and you know, tracking life that way. And it reminds me of the, the Rumi quote, leap and the net shall appear. It's not like the net's there and it's like, it's all this way, Kyle, you got to trust. Like there's got to yeah. be some surrender experiment to this thing. You just got to keep following the next thing. And with that comes wisdom, which I think you, you kind of like, it oozes off you in a sense. And I think that is because um, experience is our greatest teacher. And it sounds like you've lived a lot of life, you know, in a, you know, uh, relatively short span of time, and you're going to continue to live a lot of life, hopefully. And I want to, you know, talk about what's next and what's present for you now in light of, you know, the farm and regeneration and what it means to be fit for service and a lot of that juicy stuff. But I also want to ask you about what, what was it like to fight at the highest level and win? And what was it like to fight at the highest level and lose publicly in front of the people that you love in front of thousands of screaming fans? That's a great question. It's funny, for, for a minute there, I was like, fighting's behind me. I don't fucking want to talk about fighting. And it was a podcast with Peter Thier where he's like, I really would love to talk to you about fighting though. And my audience has never heard me interview a fighter. So I was like, all right, I'll do it. But the question's great. Um, and, it, and, and it's great because my mindset was kind of thinking about this very question. Going into it, I, I remember arguing with the guy. It wasn't a sure yes when I said yes to him. I had fought a lot growing up, you know, and it was a, a lot of street fights. I ran more away from people to avoid the fight than I stood and fight. But every now and then I'd, I'd just stand my ground and, and fight. And I came out winning quite a few of the times without much training, just athleticism and aggression. But those were so in the moment mm -hmm. as opposed to he's going to train for this fight. He's a professional. I'm going to train for this fight and on a specific date in front of a gang mm -hmm. of people. We're going to get in there and fucking go for it. Right. That's a whole different ball game to say yes to. Um, and it grew, you know, it grew from like 
200 people at a Indian reservation casino in, in fucking middle of nowhere outside of Phoenix. You know, it's 100 degrees at night. The sun's setting. It's still 115 fighting out there uh, to, you know, fighting in Mandalay Bay or, you know, uh, the Staples Center, you know, and like I'm in the locker room, I'm walking out and they've got Elton John and Magic Johnson and all the greats that have ever yeah. been there. I'm like, holy shit, dude, I'm here, you know? <laughs> um, and I had some, you know, it really was a story of my career with peaks and valleys. I had two fight of the night victories. Uh, I had a 26 second knockout at, um, I think it was at uh, MGM or Mandalay Bay. You know, that fight, that was, I was a shoe in for knockout of the night because I was mm. the only knockout that night mm. against Ricardo Romero. And then I'm watching the main event and it's Anderson Silver versus Vitor Belfort. Yeah, right. Is that the front kick to <laughs> he the He throws face? the oh, motherfucking Steven dude. Seagal kick right to his chin and he goes down like a ton of, <laughs> ton of breaks and I just watched 75 grand vanish <laughs> right in front of my eyes. There were no other knockouts. It's like, I'm the guy. I'm going to fucking get this 75,000. Up until then, five of the night bonuses were like 40 grand. It's yes. like now it's 75 grand. It's yes. a big difference. It was like two bonuses. Shit. And I was like, I couldn't. I was just so mad. Anderson's a buddy too. He, he came on... Uh, homies with uh big nog so when we were mm -hmm. when he was coaching me ultimate fighter he came in i got to know him for a couple of weeks and the other machita and all those guys but to answer your question long-windedly the thrill of victory especially when you get a knockout is greater than any feeling like if you hit a home run in american baseball you're hitting with the sweet spot of the bat like you know the second you hit it you're mm -hmm. like oh oh that's got a chance you know that's why you see guys just stop and stare and have a little swag right because they know it's gone there's a feeling like that when you punch through somebody or you knee them just in the right spot or you kick them in the right spot where it's just like walk off home run. Mm -hmm. But it's so exponential because you've done that to another human who's trained and is as good as you and all the other things like, to have that level of dominance. And it's a special feeling. It's an addictive feeling, mm -hmm. like an absolutely addictive feeling. And, you know, the battles that I've been in, like you win fight of the night. You're, there's no early knockout there. That means you fucking yeah, win 15. Yeah, you're in an absolute yeah. battle. And um, I've had a few of those that were absolutely incredible. But my favorite fight of all time was actually a loss. It was the only time I fought across the pond. It was in Nottingham, England against um, Jimmy Manawa. Jimmy, yeah. Jimmy. And Jimmy was just a freak show. Like 6'1", yeah. jacked to the gills. I think he had you know some insane bench press, but he was lightning fast too. So he wasn't just a big, strong guy. And... Um, highly technical on his feet he had never been out of the first round he had all first round knockouts like and that was his first fight in the ufc and i'm just like cool man thanks for fucking yeah, just great. throwing me a goddamn wolves again right <laughs> and um the first the first round you know i had all these plans and shit and uh he beat the fuck out of me and he broke my left orbital which is the second time that had been fractured and annie actually fractured my left eyebrow hmm. and this thing swelled shut uh, in the second round, but you know, between the first and the second round, while it was swelling, Bob Cook looks at me and he goes, he goes, fuck boxing, fuck kickboxing, fuck jujitsu, fuck wrestling, put him on his back and beat the shit out of him. Mm. That's what you're going to do. Don't fucking think about it. Put him on his back and beat the shit out of him. That's what I did the whole second round with one eye. And they stopped it between the second and third round, rightfully so. I could only see out of one eye, you know? Mm -hmm. My sister was making fun of me for that fight because she's watching on TV and they're trying to, I'm, they're trying to pry it open and it's staying shut. And I'm like, <laughs> and they're holding it like, how many numbers? And I'm like, is it open? Is it open? No, like, no chance it was open. But, um, so that loss was my favorite fight because it was the epitome of, 
you know, a fighter's heart and, mm. and the warrior's spirit all in there. And it was exactly the thing I needed to hear from Bob because I was overthinking everything, you know, mm. and, and some guys like Vanderlei Silva always came in with, I train to fight my fight. I don't give a fuck what that guy's good about, you know, what he's good, he's good at. And I like that. Other guys, they watch a lot of film and they're like, this guy's, we're going to be, you know, highly technical in keeping the fight where we want it to be. Both camps are right. You know, and in, in, you know, and the opposite of that was me overvaluing what he was good at. It was the, it was the exact thing that Vanderlei was, was carrying his brain against, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to fight my fight. I don't give a shit what he's good at. And, and I was really, you know, paying too much attention to like, oh, he's so good at this. He's so good at that. And I don't, I gotta work my way around it. And, um, once that went out the window, it was cool because then, then I actually was just fighting like an animal and, and the technique was still there. You know, it's mm -hmm. not like I turned into a barroom brawler. Like I was taking him down appropriately and holding position and sinking elbows in. So that one's my favorite. But yeah, the, the wins and losses are hard, especially especially because of the price tag. You know, when you lose in the UFC, that's 50% of your purse. So, you know, there was only a point in time after the two fight of the nights where I actually could train full-time for a very short period, like six months. And I thought, I've made it. You know, we've got a house I'm renting in Phoenix. I stay with friends when I go back to the Bay for camp. And um, that was so short-lived though. You know, and then it was like, now nah, I got fucking, I got personal training. I got to work at this titty bar. And that became the norm for such a long time. I didn't know that that was going to change, you know, and it never did, you know, that was just what it was. So, but the losses were brutal because you, uh, you know, you're, I'm already not paid that enough. And then you get 50% of your purse cut. Like that's, yeah, it's a big weight to carry. It's so interesting in hindsight, how you can look back and be very grateful for that and almost see that as the highlight there's in a bunch of highlights like you said there's no better feeling than taking another man out that's trying to do that to you and that's the highest of highs and you could get stuck chasing that dragon right but to see the value in overcoming the hardships i think is a really powerful lesson you've mentioned you know your plant teachers and guides and you know the the whole idea of a bad trip is probably better reframed as a difficult one and often you learn the most from those not necessarily when it's all sunshine and rainbows and fat and pixie dust right like when you go <laughs> into the dark night of the soul and you come out the other side you're like okay i i, I needed that and i think you know this this kind of came in this um, wonderful opportunity with on it to become the the human guinea pig and try all of these things. And, you know, then that just continued this evolution, put you in front of the right people. You fast forward all of that, all of that learning, all of those experiences to today, you know, to being a father, to, to looking after land and being a steward and being a big part of fit for service. What has all of those experiences taught you about being fit for service, like as a as a man, as a protector, that archetype of that masculine, that warrior to go and kick someone's ass, but now as a as a protector provider for your family, uh, for this land that you're now stewarding, for these people in fit for service, like how how does how do you encapsulate all of that? Because it's a lot to hold too. It is, and I don't think I could get it all out, but I think the two things that come to mind are. One, you know, when you look at the warrior archetype, as Paul Checker explains it, all adolescents go through this phase and it looks like the rebel, but it really is the warrior. Cause you don't, if the rebel's with you, you stay a rebel your whole life. And there is some of that, I think, in, in, in probably everyone that comes on this podcast, but at the same time, the warrior is clearly defining. It's going to push back against its parents. It's going to push back against its teachers. Some may not go through that. Some may be yes men and just get perfect to straight A's and all that. And there's, that's, that's fine. But for those that explore that archetype, they're looking for something worth fighting for and ultimately something that's worth dying for. And I think when you experience, you know, when you go through that experience fully, you come into what you love and what's worth defending. And then there's never been in a more important time. If you look at what's happening in the world, 
than to have that clarity because that's the light at the end of the tunnel. Without that, it's overwhelming. You look at the events of 2020, you look at all, all the fuckery and things like that, what's happening with our food systems, and, it's, and it, it's, it's too much to hold. But if you say, I want to give my kids a better future than I have right now, or at least want to secure them the same freedoms that I have right now, let's hold those in place and stand the line. That becomes increasingly important and it matters. And there's a reason behind your drive every single day. There's a reason I wake up every day lit on fire mm -hmm. to make the world a better place. Um, and it's, and it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just pie in the sky shit that I'm thinking of. It's very real world things. How do we protect our ability to grow our own food? How do we make sure that our water rights aren't given away to corporations only, you know, like all this shit circles in my head and there's ways that we can go about this together. Um, but that is circled back in because of that, the warrior archetype also the warrior archetype. And I see this with my son cause He's naturally gifted and he's been doing jujitsu on and off, you know, uh, here and there since he was three, but really in the gi for the last year. And he's been competing for the first time in the last year. And at white belt, he didn't have a point scored on him in any single match in the age category that he's in. And like, there's, there's benefit there. But there's also, yeah. <laughs> that can be problematic. And so we had him go up in age and he didn't score a point on the older kid. The kid was four years older than him and he just got smoked, but he took it like a champ. And, it, and, and it's such an important thing. You know, when we think about, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this. Like you can't, you can't create the safety bubble for kids because they're, they have, they lack any experience necessary to go into a world that, that is that it, what it is. Even from a corporate climbing standpoint, like it, there is some, some kill or be killed elements to the, to the game that we're in. And it's important that we take wins and losses as they are. And it's also important that the losses come because there's is building in humility. And that's one of the mm -hmm. beautiful things of jujitsu is that you can go through this without getting brain damage, you know, whereas you might get that in boxing mm -hmm. or some other things, but you might have, you know, a little bit of a price to pay on the back end for that health wise as well. Um, but just witnessing that, I think, you know, for all the losses that I've had in the UFC, like it is quite humbling. You, you become a public figure ish on Twitter and shit like that. And, and I think I had like 35,000 followers or something. It's not a crazy amount. But I remember before camps, like people, I'd be in camp and it's gonna be like, Kingsbury's gonna get his ass kicked. He's too slow. He's too this, you know? I'm like, damn, dude, fans are fucking brutal. brutal. You know, like absolutely brutal, you know, brutal. And um, yeah, even like an old teammate, didn't say who he was, but he was like, yeah, I played with him at ASU. Uh, if I had training, I could beat his ass, you know? And it's like, it's like, oh, cool, man. Thanks for, thanks for the support. We're old teammates. And um. I think, I think, you know, there is a benefit to that too. Like even, you know, now we post shit with fit for service and I had this, um, amazing experience in nature where, you know, like a, a Will Tegel style mm -hmm. experience, you know, with this, um, uh, water moccasin, mm -hmm. which is a poisonous snake in Texas. And it came up, I was meditating and it put its head, like it, it circled around me, locked eyes and I'm meditating. And I, I'm, while I'm meditating, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to tell the full story. I'll, I'll sum it up but a, like this bee wasp thing lands on me and it kind of interrupts me. And I'm like, I ask it if it's cool. And yeah, all right. Am I cool? Cool. And like, when I come to that back to my Zen center, I realize I'm okay with this thing stinging me. I'm not going to be in fear about it. And then I go back to meditating mantra, mantra, mantra. And, and I pry my eyes open and I see the snake and it circles around my leg and puts its head right on my fucking right knee while I'm in the water. And we're just eyes. And I know what it is. And I know if it bites me, it's, it's hospital time. Right. But I came back to that same question. Are you cool? If I, I'm, I'm right, if I'm cool, you're cool. Am I cool? I'm cool. And just really checking in with myself. 
And then we had this moment that lasted like 30 seconds to a minute and a half, but like earthquake level time shit, you know, mm -hmm. like an earthquake mm -hmm. lasts 15 seconds, but it lasts hours in your mind. Like this lasted a long time. And a lot of questions went through my head about stewardship, you know, and the sacred hunts that we've done where we ask permission. I realized here I am tending this land and I haven't asked the apex predator for permission. Mm. And uh, there I got to, I got to talk to the snake and ask it for permission. And it was cool. Um, it was like, an, it was a psychedelic level experience, dead sober, right? Mm -hmm. And so I remember retelling that story at Arcadia and then you put that online and you got, you know, <laughs> some, some sweet comments and some dog shit comments, you know, that are just brutal. And I think there is a benefit to that, you know, like the comment section can destroy people, but at the same time, it builds humility to be able to say, this is the world we live in. And sometimes I'm gonna get knocked out. Sometimes something could be the most meaningful thing in my life and some people are still gonna shit on it. And that's the world we're in and that's okay. Can I still hold my center and, and not be up here, not be down here, but be right in the center. And I think those are, those are some of the pivotal things that I've, that I've had in my experiences that have led me to a place of service is that there is humility baked into getting your ass kicked, whether it's online verbally or, you know, physically, you know, there is something to that. And especially with the plant medicines, everybody's, I love talking about plant medicines. I love talking about all the wonderful things they've done for me. And in the last two years, I've had, I've had a lot of work in helping to ground people who have been seriously fucked up mm -hmm. from ceremony, from either going back to the wishing well one too many times or not having the right container to be held through it, you know? And, um, yeah. And then, and that's my dark night of the soul went the same way. You know, I dropped in for what was going to take 15 minutes to an hour and it didn't shut off mm -hmm. It kept rehashing for fucking 17 days. And anytime I go to sleep, it was like a full on psychedelic journey. So there, there is, it's not just a disclaimer, like it's not for everyone or, you know, make sure it's with the right set and it's, and it's like this, you can fucking lose your mind mm -hmm. if, you, if this happens and, and you could be well tolerated. I had hundreds of journeys before I went through this. So, um, but again, that, that ass kicking, that dark night of the soul, I think circles me back to a level of groundedness that I think it's necessary mm -hmm. to serve. Yeah. I think like one of the core <clears throat> tenets of the masculine archetype, if you will, is, is exactly that. You kept saying, come back to your center. That's like groundedness. It creates safety for the people around it. And that naturally instills a certain sense of leadership. And you've obviously had a lot of experiences that have helped you regulate in there. Like when you were saying you had the conversation with the snake, it wasn't literal words. You can't speak snake and it can't speak English, but there was a conversation, right? There is something and that something is, 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 is mysterious. It's energetic. It's felt. What, what are the things currently that you do to make sure that you don't lose that? Because it's easy to come up here in the head, right? It's easy to worry about the great reset. It's easy to worry about all these things, especially when you've got kids, like you said. So what do you do to make sure that you stay grounded on a, on like a daily perspective these days? Are there some like core baked into the cake of who you are practices that you go to every day to stay grounded? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's a few things. One, it's, it's, you know, like I can't, I haven't had another snake encounter like that, right? Uh, many people have heard me tell the story of, of the day my son was born. I was watering plants in my mom's backyard when I was living in the garage and hummingbirds came up to me and they let me know today's the day. Mm. Your son's coming today. And there was this congratulations feeling like when I finally understood them and I fucking tears running down my eyes, ran in and told my wife. And later that night, you know, we, we have, we have bear. Um, those experiences are few and far between, right? So it's not like I'm going out chasing that when I'm in nature, but mm. making myself available for that means I got to be in nature and I have to come with a certain presence when I'm there, right? It's not listening to a podcast while I'm walking the land. It's actually being on the land and being fully present there. 
So I make myself available for experiences like that, even if they are once every five to 10 years. And, and, uh, that in and of itself, there's an attunement that happens, right? And they talk about this, you know, scientifically validated. We we're at on it. Uh, there was this funny story, study in Japan called about foresting, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, where it was like mm-hmm. if they the, the depression study where they showed if you spent three days a week walking for thirty minutes in a forest, it had a profound benefit, like sixty percent drop in in depression as opposed to walking for thirty minutes three days a week in a city. Right. And then they started explaining there's polyphenols and or pheromones rather that are going from the trees that are communicating with you that, you you know, it's, it's happening on a subconscious level, but it's still happening. And um, so it's funny, you, know, you think about something like that and you're just like, hey, here's a scientifically good reason to go to this. Like, no, man, I fucking need that. I mm-hmm. need that experience to recenter me. And so, you know, being in nature, walking, even if I'm in the suburbs when in our house right now, I walk my dog. I'll find little places where there's a pond where we might run into, you know, a Cooper's Hawk or something else where I can, I'm just putting, I'm setting myself up for those experiences, what I'm trying to say. And in, and in that practice, there's a grounding element to the practice. Um, lifting weights, I love doing that. I've been trying to, to do less and less over the years as mm-hmm. best I can. You know, I, I've just recently gotten into um, blood flow restriction, Yeah, right. which has helped my left knee tremendously. Uh, I've torn that multiple times and had stem cells multiple times, all of which just sprung me back like a spring chicken. And then at 40, tore it, got stem cells. And a year later, I'm still working on it. Mm-hmm. So it pissed me off, you know, that I was like, fuck it, the stem cells didn't work. What the hell's going on? And I just realized it could be age-related. And then as I got into blood flow restriction, my workouts went from an hour to 20 minutes. And yeah. all of a sudden, I got no knee pain. And I was like, there's something to this. And I've got veins in my abs for the first time since I was fighting. I haven't changed my diet. I haven't mm. done anything else differently. So the hormonal response from that is, is awesome. And I'm always looking, especially as I age and work with clients, on what is the most bang for my buck that I can get in the shortest amount of time. You know, like if people ask you, I'm sure, should I buy a cold tub or a sauna? Mm -hmm. If I can only afford one, it's like, how much time do you have? Sauna is going to be an hour. Cold tub is going to be three to 10 minutes, you know? Mm -hmm. So for people that are super busy, cold tub wins from that respect. It's going to change neurochemistry. So I think having, having those things around me, you know, too, like Aaron Alexander has been a great guy and helping me reframe how we make things that are good for us convenient. Mm-hmm. So they'll get used. Ben Greenfield talked about that. You know, you put a pull-up bar in between yeah. underneath his office door. So every time he passed by, he had five perfect pull-ups, yeah. you know, just greasing the groove on the motor neuron pathway. And, um, there's a number of things I do there, but yeah, I've loved BFR. I probably do two to three days a week of that 20 minutes max. Yeah. Right. You know, I did, you only got, you know, it's very short rest. You're trying to spend time in the burn with very lightweight. So I hit deadlifts with 135. I did 30 reps with 135, 30 seconds rest, another set of 30. Then I could only get 20 on the last set. So I worked to failure yeah. with 135 and then did vertical grip pushups. The whole workout was 10 minutes and I was fucking fried mm-hmm. for a week. Like I couldn't do more BFR that week. I, it tore me up. So wow. there are, and that was 10 minutes, right? So like... I, there are things like Dave Asprey, you know, with a kettlebell on a vibe plate. Yeah, yeah. Work once every two weeks. Yeah. Just like, I got to call bullshit here. Like, yeah. hey, you don't look, it doesn't look like you're working. You ain't out. living to 160, bro. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it doesn't look like it's working. Um, you know, you're not really walking the walk because you yeah. told me that that's effective. But for me personally, knowing I could hit a 10 minute workout and fry my shit, like that's important. Uh, and then there's some things that strength training can't do for me. You know, like mm. some people, like my wife's a runner. She ran in college, um, cross country at NAU. She loves it. She doesn't like lifting weights. She does it for aesthetics and she does it because it makes her a better runner. Mm-hmm. So she will do it. But running is her thing. That's where she feels free. And for me, I run because it makes me better 
at other shit, mm -hmm. right? And I and I enjoy that. Um, it's not necessarily my thing the way her, it is hers. But fighting, there still is an element where like I can't, if I don't have a punch coming at my face or if somebody's trying not trying to choke me or put all their weight on my chest and crush me, you know, in jujitsu, I feel like something's missing in my life. Mm -hmm. Like there's a wild, there's a something, something of the wild man archetype is not being met. Some need is gone. And even if we're sparring lightly, I got to spar real light with Tim Kennedy. And it was so much fun because he's good enough to hurt me and I'm good enough to hurt him. And yet we're also have been through the grind and have mm -hmm. nothing to prove. And yes. so we sparred and had such a fucking great time, you know, and I was like, I need more of that, mm -hmm. you know, like no head injuries, no nothing, you know, mm -hmm. but we were throwing good shots and evading good shots and it felt perfect. That to me scratches an itch. I can't get anywhere else. So, you know, box once a week, get into jujitsu one to three days a week. Uh, coaching, it's been really fun too, you know, but but it's not the same as like actually having someone try to crush you. So yeah. I think as, like, as long as I get that in once a week, I'm happy. And, um, you know, we'll sauna a nice bath after we run. We run like once a week, we'll do two miles on the farm and it's awesome because we might run yeah. into the red stag or the black buck. Like we don't know what's going to show up on the run. Then we hit this sauna afterwards, an ice bath and um, that's done with the team, you know, all the guys mm -hmm. we have at the farm. So there's camaraderie building. They all come to boxing. I mean, there's a lot that's going on there that's beyond the workout itself, but those are the things that I really enjoy, you know, and, and um, archery, uh, distance shooting. We've been getting into that, you know, from hunting. And um, it's funny, like I, I respect fully like Rogan, all those guys, they got me into hunting, right? Mm -hmm. And John Dudley was out here. He was an Onnit guy. He made me my first bow. He made me an RX-1, mm -hmm. like custom designed it when it had me, he was taking all my measurements and he fucking gave it to yeah, me for wow. my birthday, right? So that's what I took hunting on my first hunting experience. Got my first kills with that bow. And a lot of them had said, like, we did rifle for so many years, it became too easy, we switched over, you know? And, and I get that. Um, and then I've been skunked before with the bow. And I'm like, I'd rather have meat with how expensive these hunting trips are. <laughs> you know, like, let me get good enough to, to where it's boring, then I'll go yeah. back to the bow. Um, but yeah, we become buddies with Clay Martin. He's written some really funny, awesome apocalypse books, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, Concrete Fire and Prairie, or yeah, prairie fire and concrete jungle. So like what happens in the rural areas, what happens in the cities when shit goes to hell. And uh, he's a great guy. He was a, he was a Marie Recon sniper. And everything we do with him is on a 22. So we're training. If we can shoot with a 22 to 300 meters, you can kill anything at a mile. If you got a, a good rifle, you know, six and a half Creed more, 300 wind mag, something like that. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to be picking shots at a mile. And um, that's fantastic. Like I love that, right? There's a skill that I don't really have yet, but I, I can practice with that. And What's nice about doing that with a 22 is you could shoot, you know, a thousand rounds in a day and you've spent, you know, a hundred bucks as yeah. far as like I shoot, I, I just getting, getting my six and a half Creedmoor zeroed, it was 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. you know, like that's mm -hmm. the cost of the ammo difference. So, um, we've been having a lot of fun with that. And I think, you know, any of these things that, you know, hunting, especially if I do that once or twice a year, that seems really filling. It's a ceremony in and of itself. Yeah. And because I treat it that way, but also because of, you know, guys like Monsell Denton, that's, that's, mm -hmm. I know him through Paul Saladino, mm -hmm. um, that fundamentally changed the way that I looked at hunting and brought ceremonial aspects with plant medicines into the picture, uh, to honor the animal and to really make communion with it. You know, I think those are, those are important things, but if I have those just on the schedule, you know, like we got, our, I got my first elk in January of this year yeah, right. up in Northern Colorado. That's special. Like that, that scratches an itch for me all year long. Every time I eat that elk, like we had elk chili the other day, it's just like, there's something there yep. that's different than anything else. And, um, I don't have, I've been, I've been trying to save up for one. We're going to go to Scotland for red stag and yeah, we have right. red stag on our land, but you know, 
Northern Scotland's going to have different red stag yes. than we have in Texas for sure. Yeah. So um, I'm stoked for that. I think those are the things that I, that I lean on passionately as necessary components. So I hold the ground and I have that, that mountain medicine for my family and for the people around me. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, you know, I just had a, uh, an, another wish version of those hunts where I had to kill my rooster um, recently because he was a little asshole and he attacked my son. <laughs> and, you know, like that, <laughs> taking a life, like you said, and doing it in that way, even though there was some, you know, there was some anger. I'd been beefing with this rooster for a while, but, you know, still at that moment just before the snip, you know, is like, and or just before you pull the trigger or when you draw the bow back, there's something really profound about that. And, you know, I didn't just kill the rooster and throw it in the woods. I defeathered him and I cooked him and I ate him and it was very full circle. And, when I ate that and drank the bone broth and consumed it, it was a reminder of that connection there, but also it reminded me of all of the other connections to so much disconnect that we have within our food systems of like, I could just go pick up some ground beef at the store and it's great, but it made me think about it differently. Like that was life at some point too. And, you know, I think what you're doing now with the animals on the land and stuff is, is really like paying respect to that. And we were speaking to a bunch of regenerative farmers and we had Will Harris on yesterday oh, cool. at White Oaks Pastures and like how important that piece of shoring up our food supply is and, and really like, you know, voting with our dollar and such. And, you know, to, to remember, you know, with the hunt, to remember with the competitive elements that's still in you to reconcile that, to fight. Like it's always this like more natural old stuff that still needs to be, you know, satiated within us to, 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 to really remember and, and steer the way for what is, is coming. And I think you said something about walking the walk and, and really trying to be in integrity. And I'm curious how you, how you'd kind of define that. I know you live it, but you also live in Austin, Texas, and there can be a lot of spiritual materialism, right? <laughs> there can be a lot of like, on one hand, the like the onic guinea pig can get really sciency and heady, and it can lose the heart. Over here, the spiritual types can be all heart, and they lose the body, and they just call it a meat suit, and then they neglect it, and they don't train, and they don't feed it well. Like, how do you reconcile that with this growing trend of of both of these areas, and you know, what does it mean to you to really be in integrity, particularly in the communities that you're in? Because I'm sure you've seen it. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and we, you know, we've, we have a great group of people every time, every year in Fit for Service. You know, like one of the things Will Tegel's mentor taught him when he met him, Bearhart Williams, was he just, uh, he came in late. He was supposed to speak at noon. He came at 8 a.m. And all these, you know, psychologists were up in arms like, oh, what's, what's he doing here? He's four hours early. Will, can you go tell him to leave and come back? And he goes, I'm going to sit by this cottonwood tree and lay down and I'll put out a golden beam of light and whoever's supposed to be here will start lining up. And Will, at that point, I had no real exposure. He'd done a couple sweat lodges, but no real exposure to a true medicine man. And so he looked at him kind of astonished. He's like, well, I can't make him leave now. He's got a plan. And sure enough, fucking this line forms of people, right? Uh, all waiting to, to experience his medicine. And so I've taken that, you know, like year after year, I remember like two years in, I was like, I, I, we're getting some great people, but it's not like the fullness. And so I'm like told Aubrey, like, let's put the fucking golden thread out and really sit in nature and just hold that. And we're going to draw in exactly who's supposed to be here. And I think we've done that. And at the same time, there's still some people, you know, depending on where they're at in their trajectory that, that can be on either side of the spectrum, you know, um, and that's okay, you know. The thing that frustrates me the most, I think, in Austin is we have um, a group of coaches that coach people on how to market themselves as coaches. They don't teach them how to have any fucking sauce or anything to teach, right? So what we end up with is 
uh, a large group of people that have incredible skills at acquiring new clients, but nothing to teach. Mm -hmm. And that's, that to me seems like, um, it's doing society, uh, you know, it's doing a disservice, uh, to put it plainly. Um, but you know, in looking at any of those things, right, there's always a reflection piece of, of, where do I do that? Where am I inauthentic? Where do I fucking oversell myself when I don't have the equivalency? Where should I say, hey, I'm a black belt here, but I'm a fucking blue belt there, you know? Like, and, and, it, and I think that, that helps me in, in certain ways to actually reflect on it that way. Um, where have I negated my body, you know, mm -hmm. where it's just a cheat meal and then just the cheat meal becomes a cheat week and all of a sudden I'm fucking, you know, feeling inflammation in my body and all these old injuries start talking to me again, right? Um, that's happened many times, even I watch old videos, like the Arcadia video from last year. And I'm like, damn, I was swole in that mm. video. I mean, I was strong, but I wasn't, I wasn't athletic or mobile then. I didn't have great endurance then, you know? So I think there is something to reflecting on, on those, anything that I would find to be, you know, something that, that kind of jars me, you know? But I think there, I, I truly do hold like the, the cream rises to the top and, mm. and, um, you know, if it, if it works, it works. I think there's one of the things too, like, uh, you know, we do something called full temple reset, which is through fit for service. And I just walk people through a fasting mimicking diet. You know, I create a shake. It's nothing crazy, but a ketogenic organic shake, not like fucking Walter Longo yeah, selling right. them garbage. And, um, we do that. We do that for five days. We do a whole bunch of other exercises with them, sauna, nice bath and mobility work. And we take people through a deep dive on that. And I'll still get people, you know, that are out of shape asking me like, well, what about, you know, that's not what Dr. So-and-so says, or that's not what the Mediterranean diet says. And have you read the blue zones? And it's like, dude, if any of that works for you, like you should be teaching a course yourself, right? Because you would have the thing you're claiming this, this accomplishes for you. And you'd be able to teach on that through your own experience. And absolutely dude, if that works, go for it. I'm teaching about how to find what diet's right for you through guys like Paul check, Dr. William Walcott. And most people, unless you're from the equator, do pretty well with going without at least partially for part of the year, you know, a ketogenic reset, yeah. a, some type of fast, something like that. doesn't need to be all year long. Yeah. Um, but I think there, there is something to that, you know, that, that doesn't matter. You know, you have people spending thousands of dollars to come see you and learn from you and still have all this built in. No, that's not the way. This is what I heard is true. That kind of shit. So, mm. um, you know, whether it's someone out there, you know, that, 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 you know, is, is Mr. Spiritual and, and it's going to read you your astrology and your handprint and all these things, or whether it's, uh, you know, it's funny too, like even like on January 6th, like all that shit, you know, there was the, there was the, 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 the Viking shaman that went into the, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, did they just troll all of Austin, yeah. you know, with like the, the Viking shaman that yeah. went in there. I was like, I think they trolled the whole, the whole city there. Um, and I, and I saw some of myself in that guy too, which made me laugh, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, part of it too, and staying grounded is not getting caught up in the emotions of it, but l really leaning on the cosmic giggle of it. Mm -hmm. Something I credit, uh, Shervin Jaferia is one of my good buddies, uh, founder of Symbiotica Supplements, just a wealth of knowledge, Steiner guy, um, and, and David Avocado Wolf's cousin, you know, just a brilliant human and good friend. And yeah, he's, he's you know, when there's shit like that, like he, it's cosmic giggle, you know, you just got to fucking laugh through it. And so I think a lot of that too just reminds me to 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 be lighthearted and to laugh about it, to not mm -hmm. be like, can you believe so and so is doing this, and can you believe that they're teaching people that, you know? Because it's it flies in the face of of really what we're trying to do is 
create containers that bond people together through experiences that transform themselves. And at the same time, give them the sauce necessary to have real transformation. Like when we have our events, like we let them know this is an actual ceremony. You're not going to do drugs here. There's no plant medicines here, but this is a full on, like you're going to have to integrate this afterwards for weeks, maybe months. Like you're going to have a team to help you with that, but we're going to go through this, you know, and, and, it, and it does work out that way. Um, so, you know, knowing that this is what we, what we're delivering, that's another thing I can lean back on is even if other people are doing it in a different way, the cream rose rise to the top and we can mm -hmm. still hold and perfect what we're doing by continuing to learn, continuing to be lighthearted and centered. That allows us to take in, you know, if I stay in a beginner's mind, not as the fucking expert, but as somebody who's constantly learning and trying it on for myself and not just having it up here intellectually, but embodying the thing. So I can speak to BFR, or I can speak to, you know, when you can overdo the sauna and ice bath and all these other things. Um, and that's an important piece as well. Mm -hmm. Speaking of listening to the experts and uh, there's a couple of like coming together threads I feel here, like you mentioned, you know, humility and being willing to acknowledge, okay, I'm more of a black belt in this area, but in this area, more of a white belt. And I feel like parenting is a really good reminder of that. Like nobody can prepare you for that shit, right? You're just kind of thrown to the wolves and you make it work and they are your teachers. And I'm curious, like how you think about raising well-adapted um, humans, you know, your, your children, what do you really want to impart on them and teach them so that they don't get so imbibed in the listen to the expert culture? Because as you're talking about, I can't believe this is happening. I'm thinking about our public health experts that look like not healthy humans advising everybody on how to live their life and what they should do and how they should avoid nature and close down parks. So like, how, how do you, um, practically, cause I know you took an alternative schooling standpoint as well, unschooling and, and some Steiner principles, et cetera. Like, what are you hoping to impart on your children as well? And, and what are you trying to teach them so they can, you know, pull out some, uh, value systems or mental models that are actually useful in a world where we do have a little bit too much of the scientism and listen to the experts. Yeah, it's a brilliant question. And yeah, I think we're all, you know, we, we, it's like, like, what do they say about American drivers? All of them, like 90% think they're good drivers, but 90% can't be good drivers. Yeah. You know, mathematically, yeah. that's impossible with how many car accidents we have and shit like that. Um, I'd imagine if most parents answer that honestly, they'd consider themselves a white belt. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, the best might be blue belts or purple belts mm -hmm. because we just don't have the track record of, of, you know, we've lost the interconnectivity of a tribal connection where parents can leave and do their shit for four hours while the elders are watching the kids as a group and come back, have lunch, have siesta, and then play for the last half of the day. Like that's been long gone. Mm -hmm. And even if you live multi-generationally, you know, in a, in a, in a multi-generational home, it's a step back in the right direction, but it still pales in comparison to having a group, right? The village. And um, because of that, because there's no playbook and because we're often tasked with doing it far better than our parents did, right? Coming from our generation, you know, like I think this, it's not hard to do it better than your parents did, but mm -hmm. you still must do it better than your parents did. And, and recognizing my parents will do it better than I, or my children will do it yes. better than I did, right? And my wife, um, we're gonna make mistakes and things of that nature, but you know, in terms of directing it, like, yeah, there are our teachers and, and there's a listening component to that. And there's also taking just like we just talked about, you know, hyper-spiritual or, um, you know, a meathead who is only obsessed with the meat suit and has sees nothing, no thing beyond, you know, getting bigger arms and a better bench press, whatever those things are that I see where I'm like, oh, that's not it. What does it point me back to? And so if I see what's going on in school, right? CRT, critical race theory. Let's talk about that. A child, if they're white, is born racist. 
great book uh, by Douglas Murray, who's from the UK as well, yeah. uh, British conservative, gay man, awesome, awesome author. He wrote, you know, he took all of these things of where society was heading in the madness of crowds and he pinned it against the very best spiritual teachers and, and leaders that we've had throughout modern history. And so he takes CRT and, and he goes, well, what did Martin Luther King Jr. say about that? Right. And in his speech, I had a dream, like his one wish was that that wouldn't be the case, was mm -hmm. that no matter, no matter how they were looked at, they would not be looked at or judged because of the color of their skin. And now you just reverse apply that. Yes. Like, fuck you talking about, right? Especially if you have kids, like we got uh, one of Bear's best friends growing up for the last four years is half black, half white. And he's got darker skin than lighter skin. You could be in any part of the spectrum. Um, but you know, that never was a thing. We've got one of my closest homies is, is Mexican. And he's always like, daddy, I want to get a tan like Uncle Christian. You know and I'm like? You might be able to, but probably not. Yeah. He's got Mexican ancestry yeah. and he's like, oh, that's it. There's no like, I'm not going to play with that guy because of this. There's none of that shit. And like, and I grew up with some of that just because it was a different time. Mm -hmm. But even still being in the Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, that was more or less squashed. Yeah. Even, even the gay thing was more or less squashed. I remember when I was six, I saw two men kissing in San Francisco. And I was like, w w what's that? And my mom was like, sometimes boys love each other and they kiss each other. And I was like, oh, and that was it. It was fucking yeah. so matter of fact, like there was no debating it. It just made sense to me, you know? So I think when, when something like CR, and it is infuriating to hear, like they're going to teach this in reverse now, right? There's going to be shaming. There's going to be all these things. Um, you know, if you peek down the rabbit hole far enough, you can actually see there is reasoning behind some of these efforts, right? Behind, um, you know, the mobilization of gender fluidity in schools and things like that. Uh, Mao did this in China, right? And then uh, Plandemic 3 by Mickey Willis, they do a phenomenal job of pointing to that. What did that, well, why, what is the reason behind this, right? In Mao's China, women had their haircut to look like boys and boys had their haircut to look roughly like the girls with the short hair and they were unisex. So you take away the natural equivalency for a man to defend, the natural mm -hmm. drive for a man to, to work towards building a family and having somebody he loves by making everyone look the fucking same, right? There was a reason for that. And they, what did they do there? They took away from the nuclear family. The, you worship this one person at the top and you worship the society, the republic. You don't worship your parents. You don't worship anybody. Anyone who speaks out, you can, right? Well, mm -hmm. as it turns out in history, a kid could go say, my dad is talking bad about so-and-so and they'd fucking shoot him right in the house. Like this happened. It's not, it's not make-believe, right? It's not 1984 George Orwell. This happened in real life. And 20 million people died because of that. So I think in understanding what's happened in history and things of that nature, we, it, it starts to make a little bit more sense. And then what is the counter for that, right? Well, the counter is, I want my kid to have as many friends as possible from all different walks of life. And if there's something different about them, there's an autistic kid, prime example, autistic kid that comes to our, our gym every now and then. And he's more on the spectrum than I would think would be capable of doing jujitsu. So let me put it that way. Great kid, but he, you know, he's, he's full on. He's not like, you know, some people that are just barely on the spectrum. He's in it. And uh, Bear asked me, he said, oh, he goes, man, the kid's annoying sometimes. He'll keep coming around and, and touching me. And he keeps walking around and touching me and he doesn't do the line drills. And I was like, well, buddy, he's a little different. And we talked about, you know, um, some of the potential reasons for that, but just what it is. And I grew up around a lot of autistic kids and, um, and saw the full spectrum. I got a cousin who's that way. And, uh, you know, it was just explaining that. And then once he understood it, he was no longer bothered by him. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, that's, that's it. That's it. You know, he has a certain gear. His mind works in a certain way that's different. 
right? But color of skin doesn't mean your mind works differently. You know, it may mean you come from a different background or you have a different accent or something like that. And I think it's just, it's really, you know, in, in being in front of different people of different qualities and backgrounds allows for that understanding to take place. But when I witness in my kids and what, when I witness in all children is that there's a general openness. Mm-hmm. They don't give a fuck what somebody looks like. They want to be pals. They want to have a friend. They want to have a playmate. And when it comes to actually steering where they go, if you look at society and you think, how did we wind up in this place where everybody just got in line and said, yes, sir, thank you, sir. (laughs) Thank you, sir, may I have another Mm. uh, five times. When you look at that, that's because we were all indoctrinated to behave that way, right? We were all taught through school and through education that if you speak out against authority, you get in trouble. Mm -hmm. And if you do that enough, then you're kicked out of school or you don't get to go to college or you don't get the good job or X, Y, and Z, it will affect you, you're fucked. The truth is that's not the truth, right? And and if we really look into that, what kids need now is to be taught how to think for themselves. Mm. They don't need to learn to memorize shit. They need to be taught how to think for themselves. And a big part of that isn't how we parent, right? If you're, in fact, there's a great book um, by Larson Rose called the, the, God, what is it? It's going to fry me right now. Superstition, the greatest superstition. I'm going to find it. It's worth mentioning here. The most dangerous superstition by Larkin Rose. Mm -hmm. So if you parent your kids with a my way or the highway attitude, if you tell them because I said so, and they agree, when your kid isn't, when you're not the one that's the authority figure, that's what's ingrained in them. Mm. They're going to say yes to the teacher. They're going to say yes to the fucking mayor, whoever's forcing some experimental medicine down their throat, right? They don't have the ability to say no, right? So you'd better explain yourself and the mm. reason why. And you'd better have a reason why, you know, like you better make it plain. Like there's, a, there's, there's evidence and reason for why I want to teach this way or why I want to need to parent this way or... If you, because if you run out in the street, you're going to get hit by a car and I don't want to lose you. And I love you. Right. And cars kill kids, cars kill dogs. And you talk about, you know, your buddy's dog that got smashed back or whatever the, the, the evidence of that is necessary. So they can frame it in their head and say, okay, that's why. And still apologize for yelling, right? Like, mm-hmm. sorry, I yelled. I was nervous about this, you know, and like really just humbling ourselves and saying like, I, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not a perfect parent, but this is what I'm trying to teach. And this is the reason why. Uh, we, we operate the way that we do in this household. And I think if you do that, you know, we're, we can, we can teach in a way that, that will help aid them in becoming people that can think for themselves. But this book, the, the most dangerous superstition is all on the fallacy of authority. It is mm-hmm. utterly brilliant. It's one of the most important books I've read in a long time. Luke's story turned me on to it. Yeah. And I think if we can break the spell of that, we can change society until we break the spell of that. We will not change society. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. I think that ultimately, you know, you're the authority over yourself, right? And, and uh, you know, Czech talks about this a lot, the archetype of the child becoming an adult and, and a child needs to be told what to think. And schools do that really well. They tell you what to think. They don't teach you how to think. And maybe an adult is somebody that can listen to different perspectives, not get so triggered and, and, you know, confined to the belief system, but hold conflicting views, let that sit with them. Okay, what makes sense to me? What feels most present for me? And actually learn that as a skill to move forward. And I think that that is something that, yeah, I would, I would agree industrialized schooling is not doing a good job of. And one of the, you know, 
the ways in which we continue to shore up the future is kids. I mean, I, I hear a lot from people and I think this is really sad. And I think it's in the zeitgeist a little bit because of this programmed message, unfortunately, that, you know, you shouldn't bring kids into the world. There's too many of us, et cetera. And, you know, we can go down a rabbit hole as to why that might be. But there's the, I don't know where I heard this quote, but somebody said, never feel guilty for bringing dragon slayers into a world full of dragons. And I thought that was so badass, you know, and um, that raising conscious kids through conscious families is is our future. And that another part of our future is, is, is land and our right to eat meat, which is another thing that gets attacked, right? This push to the, the plant-based agenda. And as you're doing with your children, as you're doing with Fit for Service in these communities, you also have another, you know, um, horse in this race, which is protecting land and doing it right and trying to heal soil. So I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, the evolution of that and, and how you, it's called Haven Hall, Haven Ranch? No, uh, Gardeners of Eden, but Haven okay. sounds cool. Yeah, right, cool, cool. <laughs> Must have heard that somewhere else. But what's it like to, you know, transition into like a land steward now, a farmer, work with that and protect the land and animals, et cetera? Yeah, I've been drawn to nature because of the plant medicines. And, you know, growing up in Northern California, we had access to the beach, 45 minutes, the mountains we could go hiking and running through. And uh, Tahoe was nearby, a few hours drive. We'd go up there every winter. My buddy would work at North Star and I'd stay in his cabin for two weeks and get the buddy pass and just spend spend time on the mountain. Um, lots of water skiing, lots of lakes, things like that. So I've always felt that real draw there. But in terms of like having a hand in it, you know, I was drawn when I was in my, when I first started introduced to plant medicine, I was still living in my mom's garage. So I just asked her, can I plant some fruit trees? And then that started it, you know, and then can I do a little, can I do a little veggie garden? And that started it further. And, you know, because of movies like Food Inc., you know, we knew to vote with our dollar. We'd buy whatever, for the longest time, the most, the best thing I could buy my family was grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef. It's the only thing I could. I could never get us tenderloin or mm -hmm. T-bones or any of that shit. It was always ground beef. That was it. And, um, and that's what I did, you know? And then at a certain point in time, we could get like the, the beef liverwurst, this 20% liver, 20% yeah. kidney, 10% heart, you know, of grassland beef. And, um, and my kids have grown up on that, you know? So like, there is a connection there, but we've, we've had our, you know, we've been voting with our dollar. We've been following these things. We've been tracking it. You know, Paul Check's been wearing, I love dirt shirts for fucking 30 years before it was cool. Right. Um, and I've, and I've had a passion for, you know, every, every documentary that comes out about the land, there's like a soul drawing me towards that from the biggest little farm mm. to kiss the ground, you know, and now common ground's going to come out. Ryland's just about to wrap that up. Uh, I think next week or the next week after that should come out on Netflix. And, um, so, you know, these, there is a, there's, there's a draw from watching these things. And because I've been invested in it already. I wanted more of that. I didn't know what it would look like. And then really with 2020, it was like, we have to grow our own food. You know, like I know what's ahead from fucking the innocence of eating crickets uh, to, you know, beyond meat, beyond burger, uh, whatever the things are, you know, like that it's, it's not, there's no innocence there. You, when you think about that and when you understand health and wellness fully, you understand that there's a large percentage of us that do really well with meat and even the smaller percentage uh, from the blue zone, from someone like Okinawa, right? They're primarily eating rice as their main caloric intake. They're also eating shellfish, which is like organ meat. Mm -hmm. Oysters are fucking king of the castle when it comes to yeah, micronutrients, so right? Dense, yeah. So you're talking about like, oh, they have very little protein, very little meat. The meat they're selecting actually gives them everything they mm -hmm. need, right? They're getting some of the best bang for your buck, pound for pound. Uh, animal product on the planet. So yeah, then the rest can be rice or whatever the hell else it's going to be. Um, understanding that, 
like it, 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 there's a draw to participate, you know, and, and really when 2020 happened and kind of looking down the pipeline at, at you know, whatever agenda 2030 and, and all these things are the great reset, I wanted to secure as a father, as a provider, a place for us to have our own food and not just for me, you know, there was a great guy who got shut down on YouTube called ice age farmer. Yeah. It was really yeah, a great no proponent. Way. Yeah. Great guy. He was dropping a lot of truth on food and, and, and many other things. And, um, uh, I think he got chased out of doing his job. Yeah, to be honest, he's not on lately, but um, which is a little frightening. But um, God, where was I going to go with Ice Age Farmer? Here's the fighter shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we wanted to grow our own food, and one of the things he said, Ice Age Farmer said, as a culture, we must produce more than we consume, mm. and that really landed for me. We got to produce more than we consume, and and the real tangible stuff, you know, we got to produce stuff that people need, you know, whether that's a skill you have, you can't just hold the skill. You have to have that gift shared, mm. right? If I have a knowledge, if you have a knowledge, if people listening to this have a knowledge of health and wellness on what real health looks like for those who are willing, we got to share that, right? Nobody needs advice. But if those are coming, if there are people coming to us, like you don't just hold that and say like, it's, it's a, uh, you know, 1250 a call. Yeah. Like whatever the thing is like, no, the kid that, yeah, I'm going to share that openly. I'm going to share it on the podcast. I'm going to share it far and wide. I'm going to give you all of my teachers and mentors that I learned it from, I'm going to give you their books. Anytime I come across a new book, that's awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to throw that out there. I'm going to promote that. I'm going to share it online. That sharing it and produce, that's a production as well. Mm. But from a food standpoint, really understanding that like on a very small plot of land, we could create a shit ton more than we need, more than we'll ever need. And that's one of the things we were, you know, on our 118 acres, it's not a big plot. We're looking at like biggest little farm was 200 acres, yeah. you know, and they did the whole thing, right? They, they really went all in and that took a lot of investment. Um, and, and thankfully we've had a lot of investment into our land to, to make it what it is right now. But we had, we had a nine acre area that was a sunflower garden that the guy had used for, um, just for his ag exemption. He grew wild Texas sunflowers and had six cows that gave him an ag exemption. Mm never sprayed anything three soil analysis zero glyphosate zero oh, fertilizers wow. and we got three percent organic material so we're yeah. starting in a phenomenal place and rather than tearing through because I, I walked the land with charles eisenstein i walked the land with zach bush i'm like do we burn it down even if we burnt the whole thing to the ground we'd still have half of what you know the, the biggest little farm had and really it was just that question of I don't, we don't need to become giant scale farmers that are producing for all of austin we just need to produce more than we consume mm. And so that, that helped us create kind of a smaller pocket and one in which where we knew if we were going to share this with people, they could imagine it for themselves. So within that nine acres, we have 400 fruit and nut trees in a food forest that is only on three acres. The footprint is only three acres. So like a lot of people can't afford 120 acres or a thousand acres, but you can afford, most people can afford five acres. If they think about it. You're living in a city, you're spending X, Y, and Z. Can I get out here with another couple and put up two houses on five acres? Probably, Right. And to know you could have 400 fruit and nut trees and, you know, hundred plus birds on the land, mm -hmm. like, like feeding it and getting rid of the insects and things like that. Like that's, that's a big deal. So it's, it's palpable. And I think that was an approach we wanted to create something aesthetically beautiful, something that functioned well, but also something that people could wrap their heads around when they're thinking about homesteading and things of that nature. Mm. And the rest of that hundred acres, we're doing more of the savory style animal rotation, um, We've been uh, running cows and sheep together with Livestock Guardians. So we were up to 24 cows now. We just got our oh, bull. Wow. And um, they're really fine-tuned for Texas, Corriente. A lot of, like we, we talked to our dairy farmer 
uh, Strick, and she just started. She goes, "Why the hell are y'all doing Corriente?" <laughs> like, because uh, they're really good against heat, and they do really well for land regeneration. And she's like, "The pound for pound ain't gonna put on no meat," yeah. you know. And I was like, "Well, that's just where you start." And then we take in yeah. Beefmaster and Mashona, and we start to breed in the, the bigger size. But we got to start with something that can stand the heat. And um, she couldn't wrap her head around it, but you know that can we learned from Daniel Griffith, who is one of Savory's prominent teachers, and. Um, it's been awesome, you know, like having the podcast, knowing guys like Paul, knowing different people in the space. It's been awesome to know that, that, you know, I had this in a journey come up. I don't know if it's true for everybody, but it is for me. There is no six degrees of separation. You can mathematically say there is, but there is one degree of separation between me and everything in existence. And if I lean on that, I can trust with that golden thread or whatever prayer I want to make that the exact person that I need to meet at the exact moment is going to show up. And that's how it's worked. That's mm-hmm. why it's like, that's why it's like the Paulo Coelho book, The Alchemist, right? I can trust in that. And and that is in part a leap that requires no leap, just a belief. And I know because it, it's it's been there, right? Mm. Like uh, Jung said, do you, you know, in his one of his famous old interviews, do you believe in God? He said, I don't believe, I know. Mm. So I know we're always connected to the right people that we need. And we have been able to stand on the on the shoulders of giants when it comes to permaculture through Chad Johnson, Sepp Hunter, Holzer understudy, Daniel Griffith, you know, uh, savory understudy and really learn from these guys firsthand and and for being in our first two years of homesteading like we're hitting a fucking home run Mm. you know with with and not from a production standpoint but just from watching the land change it's been remarkable to see the grasses come back year two in the spring like wow this did not look like this last year you know and seeing which trees are taken off and where the chickens like to huddle around you know like it's just like it's it's rad you know so um it's been a huge learning curve, one that I freaked out about on more than one occasion, you know, knowing what I was taking on. Like you try to learn biodynamic farming from Steiner. You, you could get a PhD in that, yeah, you know, like right. that's a 30 year process. Yeah. Uh, permaculture from Holzer or any, any of these other greats, you know, uh, Richard Perkins, guys like that. Like you could spend 30 years in it just to have some equivalency, a purple belt, right? Maybe a brown belt. Like it's not, it's, it doesn't happen overnight, but we've been very fortunate to, to learn from some of the best and to be able to piggyback off that, you know, we're bringing black belts in the plant with us yeah. and that's, that's really helped us out. Yeah. This model of collaboration, not competition, right. is mm-hmm. so key, man. And I think, um, you know, I've, I've heard you call in a stole this term now, the God nod of continuing yep. to just trust that, you know, what you seek is seeking you. And as long as you can hold that intention, like believe that it's real, because it's hard for some people to believe that it's real, because maybe the only evidence they have right now is it's not, man, my life's been shit. But why don't you just run that experiment of believing that it's real and hold that and set that intention? And like you're talking about, like things start to work powerfully to conspire to help you to to keep that hope. And I've seen that in my mind. And if you'd have told me that, you know, seven years ago, I would have been like, whatever, man. Like that sounds too good to be true. And maybe it is too good to be true, but maybe it's possible for everybody. And I think, you know, selfishly, I could sit here and continue asking you all, all kinds of questions and and you know run you into the ground. But I have to hand you over to some of our uh, guest callers here as well to uh, see what our community wanted to ask. Uh, oh, this is dope! Kyle. I haven't done this since uh, Jason Ellis's. Po- I did Jason Ellis, but he does radio. You know, on Sirius XM. Yeah, right, right. And it was funny because I got trolled from a live guy who was also another. And I was like, did you fucking plan this, Jason? Because we're buddies. I thought he was fucking with me. And he's like, no, but it is another guy. It was was another radio host from Sirius XM. No way. And he was trolling hard, talking about like fasting will kill people. He was against fasting. Like of all the shit that I've said here today, you pick fasting as the thing to go up against? I was like, dude. It's hilarious, dude. (laughs) 
Well, I hope our our crew is gonna be a little a little kinder. What have we got over there, Cade? Yes, we don't have any uh, callers today, but they did submit some questions yeah. through Instagram. So I'm just gonna ask them out and uh, see if we have any responses here. Sick. Let's go. So the first one is Kyle's thoughts on kids doing martial arts when they're young. Yeah, there's there's uh, you know it's funny. I thought that jujitsu and wrestling were primarily the most important, and that boxing and kickboxing and things of that nature. Um, wouldn't be great for kids. And, and a guy who's a former IFBB world champion bodybuilder, Ben Pakulski, who's yeah, a, right, has right. a fucking fantastic mind. Yeah. You know, he's a thinker like Dorian Yates. Um, he was talking about having his kids in Muay Thai. And I said, really? I was like, why? And Muay Thai is my favorite martial art. I was like, why would you do Muay Thai? And he was like, well, any X pattern, you know, left foot, right hand, mm -hmm. and back and forth is going to train them neurologically in a way. And it's pattern systems, right? Like you're learning one, two, one, two, ten with the kick. Like mm -hmm. you, once you start to find these combinations, it's forming mathematical equations in the neurons. Like you're, the neurons that wire together, fire together yeah. mathematically in a way that you can't get in any other sport. And I was like, that is brilliant. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited if Bear ever wants to try it. You know, we have we have a long uh, long kicking bag in the garage as we build out our house uh, on the farm of the homestead. The whole garage is going to be, it's a three-car garage. It'll be a dojo. So it'll be matted. Heck yeah. We'll have three bags in there, a little teardrop bag, an uppercut bag, and, uh, and, the, and the banana bag for kicking. And if he wants to learn, cool. But much like unschooling, like there's no force there. And mm -hmm. that's the fucking constant reminder for me, especially with the things I have a black belt in. It's just like, ah, hands off. Yeah. I'll be coaching um, Saturday in jiu-jitsu, and I don't coach him. He doesn't, he doesn't want it. You know, he wants his head coach, who's also brilliant and a better jujitsu practitioner than me. So it's like, mm -hmm. all right, Koji, you got him and I'll take anyone else, you know, if they're competing at the same time. And the other kids love me coaching, but that's kind of hands off there. So that's an important piece for all the trophy kids, parents out there, you know, yeah, like right. watch that Damn. movie and understand like your kids may not want to learn from you and that's okay. You know, like just set them up for success by taking the right teachers. When it comes to martial arts, there are a lot of things that would, wouldn't be detrimental, but it would also lead to a false sense of equivalency. And Rogan talks about that all the time. There's a million pay-to-play martial arts where, you know, little Johnny's up for his purple belt promotion. It's 150 bucks and you just pay the guy and he gets the purple belt, right? Like, um, and that's not jujitsu, but like karate and different things. And, and, you know, if you look in the UFC, there's guys like Lyoto Machida, um, Chuck Liddell, uh, Kaji Kempo, Hawaiian Kempo karate, right? Stephen there are Thompson. karate. Yeah, it's the Wonder Boy. There are karate guys who go all the way to the UFC and become champions, but they're very few and far between. And the reason for that is most karate is taught as point karate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Same thing with Taekwondo, a lot of these things. So, you know, for a lot of parents, especially if they're leaning towards Krav Maga, I'm like, please don't. Yeah. <laughs> don't waste your money. Send them to jujitsu. There's no one in the UFC that does Krav Maga for a reason. Uh, one of my closest friends that I trained with, he fought in the UFC with me. Uh, we moved to Vegas together. Noad Lahat, Israeli army, active duty, you know, MMA fighter at the highest level, black belt under Hikaru, Hikaru Vieira uh, in jiu-jitsu. Laughs at Krav Maga. Yeah. Like, don't do that. Get them in jiu-jitsu. Get them in something real where they're going to be tested daily. And that test of sparring, even if they never compete, is the very thing necessary to make them have a full circle approach to the game, right? They're going to lose. They're going to get hurt if they don't tap, if the ego gets in the way. From a system standpoint, if you look at jujitsu, like that, nothing could be better than that. They're not going to get brain damage from it. Um, but in giving them the gift of, of really being involved in something where they have all possibilities, like jujitsu is it. 
Um, past that, if you wanted to do some real form of striking that does translate, Muay Thai is very good. Boxing is very good. And of course, wrestling is awesome. Mm. Wrestling can be, you know, it depends on your kid. You know, like I got buddies like Daniel Cormier and Ryan Bader, and I asked them, when do you get your boys into wrestling? And it's different. It's different for each kid because some of them don't have the drive. Wrestling is one of the first sports I ever did where I was like, holy shit, dude, I want to quit. This is too much. I feel like I'm going to die. And then you stick around and you make it through. And at the end of the year, you're like, I'm fucking invincible now. Nothing can stop me, right? So there's a gift in wrestling, but it's, it's only for the willing, right? And and it may be better to do the gentle art like jujitsu yeah. than to force them, especially at a younger age into wrestling where they might just say, I hate my dad, I hate my mom, <laughs> I hate my wrestling coach, and I never want to do shit again. You know, like you want them, you want them to love, love whatever they're doing for with some longevity. And the longer they stay in it, whether they take it serious or not when they're young, that's all that matters. Just keep showing up as long as they're willing to show up. And I use that as an example. I had a good friend in college who, who was a full ride scholarship golfer for ASU. And he fucking hated it. He mm -hmm. hated it to the point that when he was done with school, he didn't golf for 10 years. It took him 10 years to heal that wow. until he could get back on a golf course with his old man. So don't do that. You know, just, just leave, let, let them love it in the way that they do. And if, if they end up being good at it, or if they end up, you know, excelling, cool. If they don't, and they just use that as a practice, it's going to make them a better person no matter what. The best way to kill a love is to turn it into a labor. And I think parents are really good at doing that to the kids. So just stay mindful of that. But that was beautifully said, brother. Cool. All right. Next question. What's your biggest fear as a father and raising kids in the modern world? Fears are plenty. Oof. <laughs> Your it's funny. I, I will say this about fear. Um, for a long time, I was trying to, to, I even went into plant medicines, like extract all fear. You know, like I'm going to come to a place where I live without fear. And um, a lot of this thinking was around like 2019. It was like right before the dark night of the soul, which is the fucking scariest shit I ever went through. And um, it's funny because as I backtrack now, the farm started based in fear. You know, it was based in fear around our food supply. It was based in fear around us not being allowed to have face-to-face -face events in other states. You know, like we needed to secure our livelihood and we live and die on face-to-face -face interaction. You can't do what we do in Fit for Service through Zoom. But I want to give fear a little nod there, you know, that, that, it, that it can be used correctly to light a fire under your ass to do something you might put off. I might have put off becoming a farmer and regenerating the land and doing all these things that there hadn't been a catalyst that made me say right now, it mm -hmm. has to be now. Um, it's a little credit to fear. And then I think of fear for my kids, it's, it's in growing up in a way, and there's no socialization issues. You know, we have other friends that homeschool, they're around kids all the time. There's 30 kids on the mat in jujitsu. All of them are social butterflies. They all know how to interact. They're, they're great at playing. Bear goes to nature school once a week and he's with a gang of kids that he doesn't normally get to hang with. So um, socializing is not an issue, but my fear would be that we raise them so far radically away from what mainstream society becomes that they can't pretend to fit into the thing when they're talking to muggles or normal people. Yeah. You know, like we make wizards out of these kids and they live in a muggle world. How does, how do they engage with the muggle world? Yeah. They were so far removed from the matrix yeah. that like plugging into it in any shape or form becomes impossible and like very yeah. alienating. Yeah. Yeah. So I might, that's, that is a concern for me for yeah. sure. That's a very real one. Sweet. And uh, last question is what does your diet look like nowadays? Are there any specific foods you're avoiding? Fucking shredded beef, baby. That's what my diet looks like right now. <laughs> um, 
You know, it's funny, the, the, the leaner I get from BFR, the more I'll, I'll I, I don't throw caution to the wind, uh, but I have, we have had quite a few more taco nights. Like mm -hmm. I naturally, if you, you follow Walcott and um, Chex models, I'm a polar type. So I actually do very well with high fat, high protein and, and going lower carbs. And I've done constant guinea pig shit with the CGMs, with NutriSense, just to see like which carbs are good for me, which carbs are mm -hmm. bad. You know, I could eat blackberries till I shit seeds no blood sugar spike, hmm. um, a little bit of white rice and I look pre-diabetic. Wow. Know, like if I haven't fasted in a year. So I, I make sure I've, I do the at least one fasting mimicking a year, if not two. Um, that seems to keep my metabolic flexibility there. One of the first things I noticed was I could eat a stack of French toast, seven sourdough French toasts covered in maple syrup with berries. And I was still at like a 118 blood sugar and normal, right? But this is post-fast, right? Mm -hmm. So as long as I hit that once or twice a year, that keeps metabolic flexibility there. Obviously, weightlifting and other things will help with that. But um, generally speaking, the first inclination that I have that I'm kind of going off the rails, if I'm eating too many carbohydrates or inflammatory foods, like I have a gluten intolerance, I don't, it's not bad. I don't shit my pants or have something like that. But I get gassy and it doesn't feel good and I get a little bloated. Mm -hmm. If I do that too often, um, then I'll start to feel pain in my knees and pain in my neck. I broke my neck right before that Manawa fight in a scooter right. accident, 45 miles an hour. A guy pulled out in front of me, slammed front disc, rear drum. So that front disc locked and I went, wee, swan yeah. dive at 45 miles an hour in the asphalt and then meditated every day before the fight. So it was, it was actually another reason I liked that fight as much as they did. Mm -hmm. It forced me to meditate. Um, but yeah, you know, we're, we're, my wife's great because she's adventurous and finally the kids are at an age like it's very discouraging for the cook whether it's the man or the woman and we both love to cook but it's very discouraging to make a fantastic meal like i've i've made like a five pound tenderloin roast for christmas and like you little bastards are going to say no to tenderloin do you know what this is this is grass finished bison tenderloin yeah. you better fucking eat every bite of it you know like it's like infuriating like i had it was special for me when my dad could get kielbasa to go into the Kraft mac and cheese. If he cut a kielbasa in the Kraft mac and cheese, that Good was week. a fucking win, right? Yeah. Like that was a huge deal to get meat in the Kraft mac and cheese. Um, or like tuna helper, you know, where we get some tuna, we throw that in the tuna helper. And it was like, oh, there's meat with the pasta. This is amazing. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it can be frustrating, but I think like now they're at an age where we can try a little bit more. And she just did an amazing uh, regenerative chuck roast, 15 hours pulled it all apart and we had tacos with that and i was mind blown like this is this is it right here so not super low carb but overall macros you know like i'm loading that up with cheese sour cream and and guacamole i'm still getting what i need and it's uh less inflammatory than other shit so i'll find things like that that are little treats for me you know everything we eat tastes phenomenal most mm -hmm. of the time we're eating it's honestly it's it's still grass finished burgers it's hamburgers with with cheese and an egg on top or some bacon you know and maybe some fresh made avocado to go with it like it's very that could be twice a week maybe three days a week sometimes we'll do the grass finished sausages they have at costco mm -hmm. you know we don't do a lot of shopping at costco but that's one thing i like um and then mostly we're trying to do more and more stuff locally and so you know we've i've split a bison cow with the guys at rome ranch yeah, and nice. force of nature they're good buddies taylor and Robbie. And, um, we just did our first harvest at the ranch where we, we, you know, really for mating purposes had to get rid of all the males. And I, everyone does it their own way. You know, like we, I don't, I don't fault anybody for castration or anything like that, but to me, I thought I'd rather eat the rams whole than, you know, clip their balls off and, and let them live. So 
we had ram lamb, 13 ram lambs that we just processed. And so we're gonna have our first lamb meat that we have yeah. here tomorrow coming in. So I'm really excited to learn how to work with that. Uh, there's an Ethiopian restaurant downtown that I like. I've already talked to the guys at Ziki. They're really cool. Yeah, they use yeah. no seed oils. They don't yeah, fuck around. On. Yeah, they're great. Um, I met those guys at um, the What Good Shall I Do event you yeah. know, it, uh, for Force of Nature. And um, so I want those guys, like, show me how to make Euro meat. Like, show me how to work yeah. with this, right? So I want to, you know, have the, the highest quality stuff, but we also know how to make it absolutely tasty. So there's no denial, like, this is food that we're excited about. And I think if you can make healthy food that good, then you're excited about it. There's Boom. no point where I get home from coaching jujitsu and I'm like, oh, it's burgers. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I smell it. I'm like, burgers? Fuck yeah. Like, it, yeah, exactly. Like, I'm really excited for it. Um, and last night, you know, I got out the grill, I think... We don't do chicken a lot, but but chicken thighs grilled are awesome. And I was smelling it on my walk, and I was like, we're going to grill chicken tonight. And we went outside, grilled the chicken thighs, and we brought that in, and it was like, this is legit. Mm -hmm. This is legit. I'm cool with that. So um, there's no, you know, I, I try to avoid higher carb meals. I, I, I do avoid higher carb meals unless, I'm, unless it's like we're going to go, you know, get Thai food. You know, then I'll eat, I'm not going to, like, what's the point? They have low carb stuff like Tom Ka guy soup stuff like that. But like, no, I'm going to eat Thai food. I'm gonna eat Thai food. Going in, <laughs> but for the most part, you know, probably I may have a cheat meal like that two or three days a month. It's not once a week. It's not twice a week. It's not more than that. And the reason for that is I just have I've had so many injuries over the years from football at eight through fighting that they really do start talking to me. And if I can't walk or if I, you know, I pulled my calf the other day because my knee has been sore. Uh, running, you know, and then I've got dry needling and different things to get me back. And then the other day I just popped it, you know, in the driveway and I was like, nothing's more infuriating than not having the use of my body, you know? So I, I really put all practices into making sure I can optimize that. And diet's first and foremost, the most important. Like we get to, we go to bed on time. We do all the other shit, right? Diet's the one that can waver. So I really like to lock that in as best I can. Nailed it, brother. And for those of you that aren't watching online, or, or don't know Kyle in the past, like a quick search of, who Kyle Kingsbury is, you'll see this is a man that walks the walk, like you said, big, big old six, two pound of like shredded beef, just walking around being all uh, jacked and tan. So follow his advice. And it sounds very close to an animal based framework, which is awesome. But dude, this was an absolute pleasure. Um, again, kind of a full circle moment for me to sit here after listening to you so much and taking so much of your book recommendations and your wisdom. So it's been, it's been dope, man. I want you to take this, the floor is yours, share anything that's on your mind, anything that's on your heart. Also tell people where they should go to keep with what's next from you and fit for service etc take it away brother awesome brother yeah people find me uh kyle kingsbury podcast it was the on it podcast thankfully aubrey hooked me up you know as we both stepped away from on it he said there couldn't be another human director of human optimization it's yours just change it and keep it keep the following so that's been great um have a lot of awesome guests on there we a lot of a lot of health and wellness stuff but also you know uncovering a lot of the fuckery that's going on in the world and then still dive, diving deep into spirit and different things of that nature uh, with people that I find that are really fascinating. So that's been, that's been one of my favorite things to do. Coaching through Fit for Service, fitforservice.com is, it's a really cool thing. You know, we have little offshoots. If you don't want to sign up for the year, you can come to Full Temple Reset. You know, it's a five-day thing down in Lockhart at our farm. You see the farm. We fast together. We do a lot of different things together. Uh, my boy, Eric Godsey, will break down Jungian symbology and, and psychology just in and out every single day. You're going to get layers and layers and layers just pulled off you in a way that, that really leaves you different. You know, the, the Full Temple Reset is the idea that my body is my temple, but so is my mind and so is my spirit. And I need to reset all of these aspects of the self to have a Full Temple Reset. So we reset the body through the fasting, the sauna, the ice bath, 
and uh and the mobility and then of course godzi breaks down the mind we got to reset that and then we have a, a sound healing at the very end of it and um that that brings it all together especially on day five of the fast like it's it's a uh, mm-hmm. it's liftoff you know it's a really cool experience to share that with people um and then of course we run our core program all year long um we're we're done for this year but one thing we have at the end of every year now is something called arcadia which is its own thing really but it was given birth to through fit for service and it's it's you know taken from charles eisenstein who's a good friend uh it's it's how do we create the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible in a festival how do we bring that to a festival what do we learn what do we teach what do we experience uh, what artists are there, you know, and, and, and so it's bringing in, you know, speakers like Zach Bush, Del Bigtree is going to come talk this year. Mm-hmm. Charles was there last year. I think he'll be back this year. Matias Stefano, like some of, some of my favorite people, what Robert Edward Grant will be speaking as well. I'll, I'll be on stage speaking as well. And, and there's some of the best artists, you know, guys that you hear at Burning Man, like Diplo or, or, uh, Troy Boy, you know, like shit that you want to just fucking move to. And then, you know, some of the softer, more spiritual songs from Yaima and different things like that. So there's something for everyone there, but really it is, it, you know, it's about going into the heart of the beast. It's funny because we wanted to do these in, in different, you know, scenic mountain settings and, you know, uh, JP's here. I love seeing this big swole diesel boy <laughs> in the background. Um, you know, we wanted to go like the mountains of Wyoming, different things like that. And as it as it worked out, we just had to go to Vegas, Terrier 15, uh, through a series of circumstances. And, and it worked out so well, we figured let's go back again this next year as we expand it. Um, there is something too going into a festival that's in the heart of Vegas and bringing a certain set of respect, reverence, and consciousness to that festival. And I I don't think I can, and I can't explain it now, but I think having gone through it last year because I, I was a speaker, but I was also a participant in the festival is unlike anything I've ever experienced before. Like it was rewriting memories of fighting there. It was rewriting debauchery of fucking staying mm-hmm. up for three days on cocaine during the Super Bowl. Like it's rewriting all the old, all the old debauchery moments that I had in Vegas in a way that was really healing and, and, and just awesome. And the people you meet there, you know, there's so many amazing people. We had this incredible artist that I met when I was talking about the farm there who actually came out. She's done work for, um, her name's Amy Sen, Amy Sen Art on Instagram. She's done um, uh, an installation at the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, Alex and yeah, Allison yeah, Gray's yeah. spot in New York. She came and Dang. did one for us, a goddess uh, named Fleosh, the Irish goddess of fertility. So like there, there's connection points like that that you know you get you get to be a part of that just, they don't really happen anywhere else. you know. And I think there's something to, um, you know, really sending a container that's set in that way and going to experience it. It's like nothing else. It's like, and I've been to Burning Man. I've been to other places. It's all awesome. Uh, and Arcadia has its own thing, you know, and I'm excited to see what that transpires into, but that that's going to be early November. You can check that out at fitservice.com as well. Oh, and that's it, brother. That's it. Aho, brother. Thank you very Aho, much. Brother. We'll see you guys next week. Follow Kyle. Stay up to date. Let's go. All right, friends, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Radical Health Radio. We got a fresh new podcast for you every Wednesday. If you enjoyed the show, consider liking, subscribing, reviewing, and rating us on your podcast platform. It helps to spread this message of Radical Health. We'll see you next week.